The other day, Shadra and I received a uh, letter from a person who participated in a retreat last year. And uh, uh, in the letter, just a, a warm greeting letter, he said, or quoted from uh, the Buddha, and a statement, let us be heirs to the Dharma, not to material things. Let us be heirs to the Dharma, not to material things. Let's inherit the Dharma, not the material things. And I like to uh, give some uh, commentary on that uh, theme uh, this evening and the uh, significance, uh, some of the significance of it, what it, what it, what it points to in its deeper uh, aspect. And we, in a brief reflection uh, on the past, uh, distant past, there is, of course, a long-standing tradition which has highlighted, and uh, rather significantly and appropriately, the importance of renunciation. And the expression or demonstration of that religion and in uh, Buddhism, of course, is through a um, number and a small number of uh, men and uh, women taking ordination as uh, monks and nuns. And in the uh, Buddhist uh, tradition, or some of them, such as the Theravada uh, tradition, that um, renunciation takes place in which one is essentially uh, left with a very small number of material things, namely two sets of robes, I forget, um, uh, <laughs> um, a razor, and uh, a begging bowl, and a water filter. And that's more or less it. And some might think that today, of course, rather, uh, uh, again, extreme kind of uh, viewpoint, but more important than the detail of all, all of that, it's certain shifts of consciousness which are necessary for any caring and thoughtful person to examine, in which we are encouraged to look very honestly and openly and directly at the world of things. At the world of things and our uh, relationship uh, to that. There was a term, one doesn't hear it uh, so much, uh, these days in a fast-changing culture of um, uh, voluntary uh, simplicity. And, of course, little is voluntary and even less is, seems to be uh, simple. But there are some people, there may be some uh, among you here as well, who have taken that step. And so sometimes it's through uh, a lifestyle which one feels is inappropriate to one's values, to one's perceptions, to one's uh, beliefs, and therefore has stepped out of the acquisition and the pursuit of material things, and that's reflected in a manner of lifestyle. And there are others, and there may be some of you here, who have the responsibility, the, the duty, to actually look at the general thrust of one's life and how much, in honesty, not easy, in honesty, is the thrust of one's life actually directed to 
the acquisition and ownership of more material things, how much that features in the movement of one's existence. And it isn't an easy task to stop and examine that because the force, the movement of it, the attraction as, as well, is so strongly surrounding us, it's so much a, a feature of discussion, there is so much interest in money and what it can offer, that it can become a way of life. And sometimes, of course, we, there can be a covering up of this way of life and we put it into the category of a career. We'll, we'll have some convenient other language to actually mask the desire and the ambition to acquire and gain as much as one can through position, privilege, power and income, called career. And the antidote to that, of course, in uh, Dharma teachings and practice, and it's a, for some it would be a revolutionary and radical one, and that is to go from career to right livelihood, and therefore to examine and look at in oneself, when I think of career, what comes? What's my association? What's the feeling? What's, what's, how do I define career? And sometimes, not for all, some would think of it as the pursuit of self as the first uh, priority, or one might be generous enough to say self and my family and my kids. Just expand the self a little bit because one feels too uncomfortable <laughs> thinking of oneself, and one should be. And sometimes, for some of us, in looking at our life and the major thr thrust and movement of our, of our life, where we give association to right livelihood, it seems to bring about a greater, for some of us, a greater awareness and sensitivity in life of not only what I am doing, but also and equally the consequences of what I do. That can occur with career, I'm not disputing that for a moment. But right, li right livelihood is a demonstration and a statement of interconnectedness. It makes one think about what one does, it makes one think about the effects of what one does and the consequences to people, animals and the environment. And if one senses and knows that one is not engaged in right livelihood and various manifestations uh, of it, then in Dharma teachings one's not living according to the Dharma. So sometimes our field of work and the commitment really does need to be, to be uh, attended to and uh, addressed there. And similarly with the movement of, towards ownership and uh, possession and uh, having in which it becomes a driving force for more and more. And the end uh, result of all of this, that instead of being Homo sapiens, we have ended up as Homo shopians, and the, and the movement of one's life thinks along those lines, tragically, tragically. And so, in that we say, we look around us, and in the, in the world and the politics of uh, envy and, compa and comparing, we see that movement, and in that movement that goes along with it, we have prioritised... A lot of self-deception, of course, but we have prioritised 
freedom of choice. Spoke about this the other night uh, with you. And we come to believe intensely in that, and in that through possessiveness, control, accumulation, and adding, we say, I, I own this, I have this, I possess this, I got this, I gained this. The major fantasy in Western life, the supreme fantasy in Western life is to be rich. That states it all. The biggest fantasy. And in that movement that takes, takes place, we say, we say, uh, one of the major deceptions, but we, but we say, I have this, I own this, I possess this, or whatever. <laughs> it's the other way around. <laughs> it possesses us. The things have got us. And uh, existence gets sold. And we talk about the poor and the, of the people like in the Strand in London, one of the most expensive streets in that city. And when I was walking down that street, uh, street just a few months ago, eight or nine in the morning, the Savoy Hotel is there, the, the bank, uh, forgettable name, but where the Queen goes and, and writes her checks or whatever, all in that same uh, street in the, in, in the Strand there. And walking down that street in, in the Strand, what does one see in every doorway? The beggars. People in cardboard boxes, people living in, 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 a, in a single blanket. And we say these poor beggars. And, it's, and of course it, 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 it's true. But we forget, we forget that in consumerism, in, in, in this movement, wanting, 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 who are we? We're beggars at the scent stores. Never satisfied, wanting more. Begging at the scent stores, we and it goes through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and touch. And so you see, this movement, with the grip, with the holding that it easily has upon us, has a magnetic potency to it. A magnetic potency. Something for more. And when I was in the, uh, in the monastery, the... Uh, um, uh, Abbot Ajahn Damodaro um, had a set of magnets which he would bring out with tedious regularity. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he'd build one magnet up to be a human being. And then in front of it, he'd have lots of different other magnets <laughs> there. And he would use and demonstrate this in various kinds of uh, uh, um, exam examples. And he said, there's the magnet there, and these things can be revolving around, but it's outside the scope. One sees that, etc., etc., one, and one is clear about it, but there's a place, a point, where the magnet, called the human being, and the object... And they get closer together, fine, yeah, still the steady, there's still space there, space around the situation, clarity around, it gets so close and bang. <laughs> and suddenly the two things fly together. And one is, has the conceit to think it owns the other. <laughs> and 
So Dharma teachings and practice is watching the inner movement that takes place. And in the inner movement, the desire, the wanting, the holding and the having and the possessing that goes with it, and how difficult it is to uh, unseal the magnet. So we find some true space in our life. This, of course, is gone from a time when that was um, very much of a kind of individual concern um, in, into another, as we know, much wider significance and dimension these days uh, due to the fate of the, the earth itself. So it's not just wise way of living for us, important as that might be, but the consequences of a radical uh, evaluation of our relationship to things has consequences worldwide. Land, water and air, forests and nature, the poor and the creatures. So the very act and the very exploration uh, of that means effectively that we provide a service for one and all. It's not just opening up our hearts, not just expanding our uh, awareness, but we've gone deep enough inside, we see the significance of it much further afield. And see, and Dharma teachings, in that respect, do uh, make a significant departure from lots of other teachings which are uh, around. And as we know, and only too well, some people want the best of both worlds. I want to have it all, and therefore can find and do, do find some kind of world view, sometimes religious, obviously, in which there's no challenge to the quest for more. No challenge to it at all, no questioning of it uh, at all. And so one can have a whole set of religious beliefs and all the promises, heaven on heaven, afterlife, and... Uh, all, all of that, and simultaneously have and have and have more and have more. Buddha spoke, warned about this many times in the, uh, uh, in, in, in the text. One place in the, in the text, he says, religion starts from the rich. Think about it. Religion starts with the rich who want comfort always worth reflecting on. So, in this movement of the inner to the outer, one cost, of course, is we get glued. Another cost is the degree of dependency on things through holding and gripping. Another, another cost is fear, fear of loss, fear of change. And all of this has inner consequences, as I said, as well as the outer ones. What is a significant shift within us to look at the world completely differently? And Dharma teachings is a challenge to our whole existence as it is intended to be. And therefore, a feature of that challenge is how we relate to that which is around us, what, what is, and how we relate to what we don't have. How do we relate to what is? And how do we relate to what we don't have? And it would be 
well worthwhile, like with many things of life, making this in daily life and here a real meditation and con contemplation. <coughs> I've just had a lovely uh, meeting with the staff for about an hour, as is customary in the latter period of the uh, uh, re retreat, and we uh, discussed many aspects, the, the Dharma and the Sangha in the West, the nature of uh, uh, liberation and uh, various uh, other uh, features of all these things that we're uh, engaged in here. And certainly an important one of, one of uh, all of that is what our priorities are, what, what, what our perceptions are, and finding the ways and means to actualize that. And the cost, when there's holding and gripping around things which we say we claim, we own and we have, not only is we, are we stuck in that realm and in that world, but equally tragically, it prevents us from seeing much more than that. We end up in this dreadful situation again and again of day in and day out, thinking around money, thinking around possessions, and thinking about what I don't have and I would like. And it takes an extraordinary amount of time and energy in, in, in our lives. And then death comes along and says, <laughs> what relevance? <coughs> so, it, sometimes it seems a little bit, um, whatever, unworldly, but sometimes to be unworldly can be pretty healthy. Everyone looks at the condition of some things in the world. But an aspect of that uh, stepping back is in terms of what is, what is this relationship we have with what is? What is the relationship with it? And in that relationship we have with what is, is there contentment? Is there daily uh, peace and clarity? And is there a relationship which sees it as useful, or as a resource, or a, for aesthetic appreciation? But not seeing it in ownership. Even in our homes, since we're all making a rather short journey through this existence, even in our homes we say, well, you know, got a rather nice home and this, this, this and that. And we can make a possession out of it in all sorts of ways. But even that, since life and death flow together, we're just you know, short-term tenants. Just to open up the space so less of this ownership, which is the supreme ambition of countless human beings, to own. And life makes a mockery of it. It, it just, it says, you're living in a dream world. If you think there is such a thing as ownership, and it's really true, and that really is the true reality, that every, every time the cup breaks, every time the lover leaves us, every, every time we have a job and, it, and it's gone, It's telling us the belief in ownership is a complete self-deception. 
is a complete misunderstanding about the relationship to life. And because we don't explore and go into that, we suffer. We suffer. And all that it needs from within us is a genuine change which comes out of the mythology of possession and ownership and the grip of the self to one of just relating with. Being with. Being acknowledging of. Whatever, whatever, whatever. And to make that relationship authentic. And to see the absurdity of the idea of being in possession of, ownership of. It would enhance our feeling life. It would enhance our love life. It would question our fears, it would question control, it would question exploitation, it would make us more sensitive and respectful to life, to earth, to the others, to the environment. Just one shift which is sustained from ownership to just connection with in this place and time is revolutionary thinking in our culture. In the looking at the pointing to liberation, without which is not world-denying, not truly life-denying, which is in touch with the reality of things, therefore authentic enlightenment, that not only do we mistakenly become heirs to material uh, things, and incidentally sometimes, because one hears it on the, from people on the retreats and other circumstances, one of the things that often amuses me a, a, a little bit is we know, or some of us know, how very much um, our parents, say, or our grandparents, uh, worked uh, very, very hard. We, we, we know that. And sometimes um, at cost to themselves, and sometimes cost to family as well. And sometimes the, the, the view in their kind of goodness of heart, we might say, is that they're doing it for their kids. And so that when the, the parents die or the grandparents die, leave it for the children and the grandchildren. And wish to leave perhaps a, a, the sum as m much as possible. You know, some, of course, and some of you know because you, you meditate have now been cut out of the will. But, <laughs> but that's not um, 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 everywhere. And if um, some of you didn't know that, you'll soon find out. <laughs> And in that there, we, we have, um, we, we, we look at our, our, our parents and we say, oh, they have this amount or whatever it might be. And then one will become possibly um, heirs, benefactors or, in, or inherit from them the, the house and the car and uh, various other nightmares. And... And one takes a kind of view, oh gosh, you know, at I'll, I'll, some point I'll be quite rich, I'll be um, much better off in, in, in some way. And it's a kind of, um, in the wish, you know, 
parents have long life and to be happy and content, have a long, uh, long life. And there's that feeling there, natural human uh, wish is there. And of course, that other little thought that arises, hmm. <laughs> you know, there'd be a little fruit coming, and uh, uh, etc. And the, these thoughts can pass uh, uh, pass uh, uh, through through the mind um, uh, e easily enough. But the actuality is just by virtue of having, and sometimes having more, and for some people having substantially more uh, there, uh, doesn't mean to say that in any real sense one is any better off. Sometimes it's a terrible uh, weight and, and burden. And I've listened uh, in this uh, period uh, over the years in the, uh, uh, at IMS here, many, many accounts of, of people who have inherited sometimes quite substantial amounts, but uh, it's had a rather hard impact on their, on their life. You know, they, they might have mentioned it's somebody and then their friends have said, you know, I really like to start this business. Do you think you could a little loan for uh, a period? Or what do I do with this m money and these shares or, or whatever? And then there are various organizations, some of them religion who, religious who, uh, or gurus or whatever, who are uh, empire building as quickly as possible. And, and, and then they are wanting a, a cut in it. And, and it sometimes, you know, looking in our relation, relationship to things, heirs to the Dharma, as the Buddha said, let's not be concerned about heirs to material things. Let, let, let not the thinking be running to the past in that way and then projecting into the future as though that will provide any security. Sometimes it just generates more anxiety, more fear, more isolation, more high walls, electric fences and dogs and, and, and withdrawal. So in looking directly and, and clearly uh, that the renunciation of ownership embodied, as it say, in, in the traditions of the uh, East and in, monast in monasticism still, in fact, has its real, has its real relevance uh, here and now. And for some, it's looking at the things themselves. And for all of us, without exception, it's looking at the relationship. The re relationship for a liberated, enlightened life in which one isn't possessive of but just as we apply it to material things, equally the same movement of ownership and possession also enters into relationship. And it can be just as painful, just as, just as difficult. I, I was uh, in a taxi in uh, Thailand with a friend of uh, mine, a monk, and his lay supporter two to three years ago. The lay supporter had been cheated out of about $20,000. It was a partnership. Some of you will know these stories in your own life or from family. And it happened five years previously. And he'd been cheated, and the business collapsed, and he was bankrupt. And he said he could not forgive this person. He just couldn't let go. And every time the thought of this person arose in his mind, Anger rose. Hurt. Thoughts of revenge arose. So there was the possessiveness initially, conflict, being cheated, a rotten thing to do, obviously. 
a form of stealing, and the outcome of it in the emotional life, still trying to get free from it. Still couldn't move on from something which had happened in the past. Still caught, the magnet still stuck in what was. But sometimes it happens in those, those areas. And, and sometimes, of course, the ownership and possession, because the tendency is there, obviously and equally goes into relationship. And therefore we make the ownership of love. And when somebody who we are with is turning her or his attention uh, elsewhere, in all the ways, magnetic ways, in fact, that that can happen, if it's, the relationship is not one of connection and it's one of ownership, it runs deep into the emotions. And one of the most cutting of all emotional pains in life, obviously, is jealousy. Envy is wanting what others have in the material world, in Dharma language, and jealousy is jealous of the person who is receiving somebody's love and from whom one wants it. And sometimes we get caught up in the forces of envy around material things and sometimes we get caught up in, in, in uh, jealousy and that uh, experience of jealousy related to ownership, related to mine, related to having, it cuts so deep, some of the deepest hurts and pains that I've heard over the years as people going through the torment of, 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 of jealousy. Something about the relationship. And sometimes we hardly know. It's so insidious. So insidious. We start off and we say in our relationships to people who are close to us. Oh, I really have a relaxed connection. This is my friend. This is my companion. This is my lover. We have so much in common. And all the language of connection is there. Lovely. And it's lovely to see, to witness, to know in this, wo in this world. And and all the ways that you and I can feel that in connection with each other. But when the self begins to come in, it begins to move, as it were, like a layer over the connection, and the self can easily begin to form itself into a different mode of relationship. The connection actually gets less, and the ownership of increases, the possession of. And one of the signals for us in possessiveness and ownership that takes place is when we become more demanding in the relationship. Wanting more and more from it. Putting more and more pressure uh, on, on, on the person. Expecting her or him or them to give more and more to us. And sometimes the feeling and the thought when that arises, we can't understand it. Why is it that I want more connection, I want more attention, I want more presence, I want more love, and the very person who I'm directing all these messages to is withdrawing? And then one is engaged in this painful waltz of, I'm making two steps forward and she or he is making two steps backward, and it's going at such a speed that they're heading for the exit door. <laughs> and then I'm going to be left in a dance on my own because she or he is gone. Why? Sometimes we look 
and we have a love in a way of connection and love and freedom but sometimes we just don't want to be possessed we don't want to be owned by so sometimes we find ourselves under that pressure stepping stepping back because it's uncomfortable and sometimes we go the other way and we want to be owned we want to be treated as a commodity we want to be possessed and we move the other way and the magnet either comes towards us and we rebel because we feel this person wants me, owns me, possesses me and, and we rebel against that or it's the other way and we move towards and we just get stuck and then our life becomes so dependent on that other person or that, or that other situation. And if we just stop for a moment or two and we look at ourselves carefully, we say, God, my life is so dependent on what that person says and what she or he does or what she or he feels or, or, or thinks. And, and, we, and there's something uncomfortable about it. And somewhere or other, it's either submission to possession or possessing. And we need to look at our tendencies and say, in myself, honestly and openly, in that, those movements, where am I? What's happened to me in those movements? And therefore, can we not be in the world of possession or be possessed, but touch deeper than those mental pictures and images and ideas and stories and understand something about the nature of connection understand what that what the quality of of, uh, of that is just a few months ago Shadra and I were in in Bodh Gaya, India Bodh Gaya is in Bihar and um, it's ironic in that it's the place of the Buddha's enlightenment and it's certainly one of the most unenlightened places on this earth and uh, corruption and violence and just down the road at the um, uh, Mahayana monastery uh, gangsters Dakots, broke in in December 16 of them and robbed the monastery and part of the reason for it is that they thought, or they believe, that because the, uh, this temple and um, Tibetan Mahayana tradition is planning to build um, a huge Maitreya statue in, uh, just outside the edge of the village of, uh, of Budgaya. Uh, uh, I've spoken in a fair bit uh, about this in, in Budgaya and... Um, um, protested uh, furiously about it. Of course, it fall, falls on deaf ears. So it's going to cost 10 to 20 million dollars. And so the Dakots had some idea, the gangsters, that the monastery had the safe and all this money was backing in into, it, into it. So they went over the wall and two or three Westerners, unfortunately, tried to resist and uh, they got uh, shot. Got shot in the leg. 
embassies had to take them uh, out and bring them back to uh, Delhi. And we were a little uh, uh, concerned because the Vietnamese monastery was next and we're in the same street. And at the beginning of the retreat, everybody puts all of their possessions, major possessions, that passport, money, travelers' checks, cameras, tape recorders, etc., in one large, huge wooden box, rather than leaving it, you know, on the straw mats, because there's 50 men in under the temple sleeping, and tents and rooms with eight women in, etc., etc., and the doors are open 24 hours a day. So all put in one safe place. Extremely convenient for the gangsters. <laughs> and they're probably expressing great merit throughout. So I um, had uh, said that, you know, we obviously we can't guarantee the safety of all this stuff. You know, about 140 people's stuff in this huge wooden chest. And the last thing we wanted was any James Bond running out of the meditation hall there. And since the teachings and the practice um, did embrace and touch upon frequently about the importance of letting go, that everybody on the retreat might have a real opportunity to really practice it. <laughs> and the first night, they robbed the Bhutanese monastery. That was getting close. That was next door. And everybody knows, the whole village knows where the chest is. <laughs> it, it's, there's more focus on that chest than on, than on the Bodhi tree. Uh, so Thomas, Thomas Yost, the great Bodhisattva of Budgaya, he sleeps in the same room as the chest. <laughs> I wanted him to sleep in it, but he would <laughs> And, and, apart, and it's just literally just down the stairs uh, um, from uh, uh, where I am in the same row of kutis, Shada and, and the others. And apart from the fact, but just in a kind of metaphorical sense of all of, the, all of these things, the, the, the area of um, uncertainty and that which comes can go for all manner of circumstances in a way is a kind of clear reminder to... Uh, each, in this case on that retreat, but each and every one of us. Whatever can come, can, can go. And it doesn't mean to say that in, that in the world of coming and going, that all peace of mind has to go because it goes. All clarity has to go because it goes. All joy has to go because it goes. All expansiveness and awareness and freedom has to go because it goes. What is it? that we can understand in the realm of material things going? What is it that we can understand in the, in the way when relationships uh, come and pass? People who would rather stay, leave us, or whatever it, it might be. What is it that we can understand about it? And say, that's a, a contemplation, it's a meditation there. So that it's freedom which is not life-denying. Freedom which is not worldly-denying. Uh, Authentic and true to the way things are. To the way things are, not 
to the overlay of what we project onto them, which is called the self in a possessive mode. Go to the rabbi of Nazareth, Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Simply. Buddha uses a lovely word, it's called akinchana. Kinchana means something. Akinchana means not something, it means nothing. It means not having, not owning, not possessing, not gripping, not clinging on to. It's not a pulling away from the world. Actually, it is actually a real close intimacy with it. It's at quite the opposite, in fact, of what we think. We are out of touch in our possessiveness. We are out of touch in our clinging, in our holding, in our anxieties, in our jealousies, or whatever it might be. And sometimes we know that. And sometimes we hear the voice from others. We say, gosh, they got so out of touch. They're living in their own world. And sometimes there's some real truth, real truth to it. That we really are out of touch. And so to be truly in touch is liberating. To be truly seeing and connected with the way things are is enlightening. And the teachings point that to that again and again and again. And therefore our relationship to material things, our relationship to people, our relationship to what is, is a significant uh, a vehicle for enlightenment as meditating and looking inwardly at what is. All to understand what freedom is. And that freedom is so free that whether we have choice or whether we not, is not the relevant factor. It's so free that whether we have choice or whether we don't is not the supremely relevant thing. We're that free. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings understand a non-possessive life. May all beings be enlightened to the way things are. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.